0: Welcome to episode number 78 of the Video Game History Hour presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode we'll be bringing in an expert guest, someone who's done their research or lived through it and has an interesting story from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Lewin. I'm the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation and I'm here as always with Frank Stafaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation.
1: And I am pleased to welcome back our friend Chris Kohler to the Video Game History Hour. Um, Chris is the author of the Final Fantasy V book available now through Boss Fight Books. Uh, We're going to talk to him a little bit about that, but mostly actually what we're going to talk to Chris about is the evolution of fan culture from, I guess, the analog to sort of digital days and beyond. Uh, Chris, welcome back to the Video Game History Hour.
2: Hello, it's nice to be back. Uh, we, You know, I guessed it on the episode about uh, prototypes and things of that nature. Um, and uh, but it's, it's good to it's good to be back uh, talking about my own work, which is much easier <laughs> for me to to remember what it is that I did.
1: So, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about this, this before the the recording started, but um, let, let's go back, just kind of take us back to like setting the stage for what it was like to be interested in uh, sort of. What, you know, it's hard to think of, of this now, mm. but in the 90s was was the niche culture of like Japanese video games in the US.
2: True, true, true. Well, I mean, even video game culture itself was like, how do you find other people that are into video games um, when you're in sixth grade and, um, you know, and the year is 1992? Um, there's there's no, I mean, you know, it, it's it's wrong to say there was no internet, but there was no internet, you know, it's not like anything... Um, there were, there were like literally bulletin board systems you can dial into with, um, with your, your, your local phone number, you know, calling into somebody's like tiny, tiny little version of what would become the prototypical internet, but you couldn't even really do that, you know, as a, as a young kid. So it's like, I, there was a kid in my class, um, in like fourth grade who, um, like he got, he, he kind of had the same, he, he, we both had Nintendo power subscriptions, then he starts making his own magazine on, um, you know, lined notebook paper and he called it codes for every month. And he like just sort of transposed, you know, all the secret codes and stuff like that into this magazine, just sort of made it and, you know, ripped it out of the notebook and stapled it together. And I'm like, oh, what a great idea, you know? And so by sixth grade, he and I, I think kind so of- you stole
1: up. it and sold it to uh, Flint uh, Publications. I, exactly. and, uh, Tips and Tricks was born. Tips and
2: Tricks. And that's yeah. how that got born. Yep. Um, yeah, and so, like, I start doing this, and I, I started, uh, like, I wrote, um, reviews of video games in, like, my sixth grade uh, school newspaper, which, again, like, was distributed to the whole sixth grade class, like, all a 100 kids, you know, um, the rarest
1: uh, video game magazine we need
2: (laughs) it's got (laughs) got
0: famed journalist chris kohler's uh early work in it so it
2: does ironically i think i reviewed uh teenage mutant ninja turtles 3 the manhattan project for (laughs) nes and i said it was bad as it turns out it's actually very good but you know what it really does reflect i was thinking about it i'm like why did i hate it so much i'm like oh because the super nes had just come out Mm -hmm. and so The Super Nintendo was out, which meant that anything that looked worse than a Super Nintendo game, because remember, I had a Super Nintendo, and you have to prove that the thing you just bought is better than the old thing or the other thing that somebody else might have. So anything that looked worse than that was like, well, these graphics are bad. They're just bad now, you know? Um, And so um, with, um, you know, with the school newspaper stuff and, you know, like kind of, Making this um, you know, what I didn't know was called a fanzine, you know, and and running off photocopies of it and giving it out to my friends. Eventually, with Electronic Games magazine, the revival of electronic games in the nineties, um, Arnie Katz, Bill Kunkel, Arnie Katz in particular, you know, they'd all come from this fan culture. The earliest video game journalists, as we know, had come from science fiction fandom in particular um where making fanzines and um you know doing all this sort of fan activity you know Joyce Worley who was one of the original editors of Electronic Games as well Arnie Katz's wife you know she had uh she had run uh Worldcon one year that the big science fiction convention with the Hugo Awards and all that kind of stuff and so they were like you know this sort of um grassroots fan activity should um be something that video gamers do. Like gamers should, you know, people who play video games. There was no word gamers at that point.
1: You know, it was arcaders. They coined arcaders.
2: Arcaders, gamesters. <laughs> um, they should do this too. They should know the joys of doing this, and they should connect with their fellow video game enthusiasts. You know, and do this kind of stuff. And so Arnie, both in video games and computer entertainment magazine, and then electronic games, wrote a uh, fanzine column. And his whole thing was. This is what a fanzine is. If you're making one, if you want to make one, you know, send it to me. I'll be the national clearinghouse for all this stuff. I'll print your address um, and, and I'll review your fanzine and then people can find you. And by doing that, you know, created essentially a locus um, for everybody who was doing these fanzines to be able to come together. So when I hit eighth grade, I read about, you know, I read Fandom Central, the column in Electronic Games, and I was like, oh... That's what I've been doing this whole time. Like I've been wanting to make a fanzine. Um,
0: it has a name.
2: Yes, exactly. This thing I've been thinking of, this, you know, the drawing, I don't have to just draw it, you know, this thing I've been drawing in my notebooks in school, it's a real thing and and people actually want it. So I thought I'm 13 years old. My fanzine was actually pretty good for a 13 year old's fanzine, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that, wasn't that great. But, um, uh, you mail it into Arnie and then like six months later. I'm in the drugstore. New issue of electronic games is there. And I open it up and oh my God, like there's a a review of my fanzine that he wrote. And he absolutely gushed over it. And he was just like, this is, it's." it's, I just remember every word. It was just like, if someone ever makes a crack about quote, dumb video gamers, wave this astonishing first issue in their face. Um, The 13 year old editor acknowledges some help from his older brother, Dan. My brother was actually uh, younger than me. Um, (laughs) but something something um this appealing newcomer is worth a try that's almost verbatim what it said because i memorized it because i was i couldn't even believe it um and people start sending me a dollar in the mail because they want copies of video zone and like that's where that then it gets up to the point where video zone never really had a huge circulation um it wasn't like like digital press i mean god they you know joe santuli those guys they were mailing out hundreds of copies, if not like a thousand. You know, they they, they they had a big distribution list, all the Atari enthusiasts and stuff like that. I probably never got over sending out like 50 copies a month, even once I got to, you know, like college, basically, where I kind of stopped doing it. But I used that as I ended up kind of using that as the springboard, um, you know, because I would send it to all the magazine editors and stuff like that. And if, if other magazines would review fanzines, but then also then I started getting writing work, you know, based on people seeing that going, oh, like we're looking for freelancers. You can clearly write about video games. Um, but that's jumping ahead a little bit because I wanted to talk about um, uh, how this kind of relates to Final Fantasy V and the book that I did for Boss Fight Books as well. Because and as this is going on, I'm I'm, I'm getting really into Japanese role-playing games. And um, end up, uh, you know, I don't even know, like, y- you read the professional magazines, Prozines. We called them Prozines at the time. <laughs> Electronic Game Monthly was a prosine. There was a scandal because I believe it was, I think it was Tips and Tricks or possibly when it was called Video Games Magazine. I, I, I think it was maybe when it was just called Video Games. And I think they still reviewed fanzines. And they reviewed an issue of Die Hard Game Fan an early issue of Game Fan, they reviewed it in their fanzine column. And there was a scandal around that because, you know, Die Hard Game Fan was considered to be a professional. I don't know if they were taking
1: a dig at them. <laughs> <laughs> you know?
0: It's so cute. You think you're a real magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and, it, and, and to be clear, it wasn't the, the little Die Hard ones that came first, right? It was Die Hard Game Fan. Like mm-hmm. issue one or something, yeah. No, like issue that, that, like is issue like twelve. Oh my god, it was it was in color. It was it's like... perfect bound by then.
2: <laughs> it was it was. I think it was one of the big perfect bound issues towards the end of the first year. Now again, maybe they didn't have Die Hard game fan when I found my first issue of it. We were in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, Um, and I was kind of blown away because Die Hard did, it did not have national distribution at that point, or it certainly wasn't in like the Barnes and Nobles of Connecticut, and so it was weird to find it. Um, and i was i mean you, you know diehard game fan obviously everybody's really blown away by that the you know the slick glossy pages you know the the huge coverage of imports tons of screenshots really high quality you know screenshots um so it was really strange cuz video games at that point was i mean to my taste was not a great magazine but my taste was you know i'm a young teenager um you know that that sort of thing, and and so I guess reading Die Hard Game Fan magazine, and there was this whole idea at that time that um, you start to uh, you start to you start to notice um, that there's a lot of video games that you do not have access to uh, because all these cool games stay in Japan. Now, Die Hard Game Fan, of course, you could almost argue it came from a fanzine-ish tradition because. It was this magazine that was that was made by a video game store, and so um, there was always there was always this element with the you know with these older magazines of a, like are you trying to sell me something? But like Die Hard Name Fam is a hundred percent like trying to sell you stuff. Um, so the latest import game, they review it and they're like, this uh, this is amazing. We don't have anything like this in America. This game is incredible. Ninety five out of a hundred points. Um, and it's like you'll never be able to get your hands on this ever because it's never coming to America and it's the most amazing thing you've ever played. And you flip the page. Oh, they really
0: sold the the myth there, like really made it Absolutely. This For every magical you know, unobtainable thing.
2: For sure. And then you flip the page and it's like the die hard game club. Oh, there's that game. Oh, it's it's $150. Well, what's $150 in 1993 money, you know, if it, it means I can get the best thing that's ever made. And so there was definitely that that element there with Die Hard of like, we are literally just sort of trying to sell you on the idea that import games are this higher class of, of gaming. So not only Die Hard game fan, but I mean, everybody talked about the Final Fantasy that got away, you know, which was, you know, we had Final Fantasy two II and three. And then the big, the big thing to learn, you know, in the mid 1990s was that Final Fantasy two II and three were not Final Fantasy 2 II and 3, there were Final Fantasy 4 and 6 in Japan, and um, that, that meant there was Final Fantasy 5, and the only thing that you would really even know about Final Fantasy 5, because it's not like they really did like in-depth articles about it, you know, you'd see just a couple of screenshots, and would be like, that looks like those other games I like. You know, why? Yeah, well,
1: I, re- I remember it being in an EGM, I think like a preview guide where they would just do screenshots in a grid of, of every game that was at CES or whatever, or like anything that they think is coming out soon. So. And right. that's how I learned that. I was like, oh, yeah, another one of those. OK.
2: And it's true. And it was at CES. And um, and and they did initially discuss it uh, and they showed it and they said, oh, this is going to be Final Fantasy three in America. Um, and they very quickly moved on from that just because it all kind of jammed up. I mean, they were cranking out those Final Fantasy games like fast, you know, like they, they would make those games in a year. The fact that Final Fantasy VI took like a year and three months was like a huge delay. Um, and but by the time that they kind of got to five and six, it's like you look at Final Fantasy VI, you look at Final Fantasy V, one of them has this amazing visual appeal that the other one, kind of does not because it looks, it, it just uses the Final Fantasy 4 engine, you know? So they skipped over it, you know, makes total sense. But at the same time, I mean, also when you're, you know, at this point, I'm like 14, 15 years old. And you're just really irrationally angry at the world around you. And everything is some huge screw job. And it's like, you mother, you know, like, why you. How would you not give us this game, you you absolute jerks? You know. Well, and
1: and from my perspective, as I didn't read Die Hard Game Fan, but I read EGM at this time, yeah, and, and there was, it was fairly similar in that it felt like every issue they were like, look at how they censored these boobies, and and like mm-hmm. it's it's like literally the same thing <laughs> as it is now, but it but yes, to a young teenager, you know, I wasn't like. Angry because I need I need to see cartoon boobies, but it was mm-hmm. it was like they're censoring they're 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 altering these games. I supposed to, the game should be free.
2: You know, in um, you know, the game Live Alive, Super yeah. Famicom. So I just finished a whole. Is that is okay, that so. how
0: it's absolutely pronounced? Yes. Is, are you a hundred percent sure about that?
2: Yes. Because okay, great. At the, the katakana. Great. I know okay. that
0: now.
2: Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I know. I always said live alive or li- yeah. I never said Live live, but I'm 30 sure I said Live Alive until I finally looked. I'm like, oh, it's, it is Live Alive. Okay, great. It's coming out. There's a remake of it coming out uh, on all platforms, which is great. I finished a playthrough of the Super Famicom the fan translation, actually, which is, which is by um, uh, Mado, among other people, by Clyde Mandolin, and uh, very, very good, very good fan translation. And um, the funny thing is about Live Alive, you know how in Final Fantasy IV, there's like a stripper who like takes off her clothes and, but she has like a bikini on or underwear, you know, but of course, Final Fantasy four, again, that the, the characters are like at like uh, three quarters of an inch tall, you know, they're very, very small not even Final Fantasy six. so in live alive, there's a fully naked uh, moment where one of the, in the, in the caveman uh, scene, the, 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 the girl like fully flashes you. Um, and I'm just like, Oh wow. They really went for it. And she's like, this tall. Um, there was, uh, you know, there's a lot to talk about with Square also, just in in the fact that, you know, Square uh, came from the Japanese, uh, the world of Japanese PC games, Mm -hmm. um, which absolutely, like, from day one, they were for adults. They were for people who were spending thousands of dollars on computers. And that, it's like that's where, like, Square came from. That's where Kojima came from, with Snatcher and things like that. Like, you know, Enix, you know, published, like, pornographic games. So did Koei. Like, these companies don't really talk about this, but, like, when you see the erotic sort of stuff in the er- in the 90s with Square, it's because, like, these designers kind of came, you know, from that world where everything, like, you know, had to have some kind of, like, eroticism or, you know, nudity in it.
1: Um well, and it's, it's like when I, they're making the console games, are they making, like, games for kids as a side business?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, certainly... I mean nudity in Japan especially in like the 80s and 90s and things like that was absolutely something that you saw even in kids entertainment like that did not did not like um disqualify it from being sold to children um especially if it was being used in a humorous sort of way um so uh they they were sort of like transitioning into this kids business but like the the mentality the sort of leftover like you know, let's put dirty jokes into this game. Like you know, definitely kind of carried over. Um, like they weren't coming from the same places, like Nintendo uh, or or Sega. Um, anyway, they kind of get back on track. Um, Final Fantasy Five, you know, was in these magazines, and you could read the previews of it. And then they said, "Oh, we're gonna we're gonna bring it here as uh, Final Fantasy Extreme." Um, you know, because it's so, it's too, it's, it's so extreme. It's so uh, difficult, you know, so we're going to bring it here and we're going to kind of give it a name that, you know, suggests to people that it's difficult. Final Fantasy V is like not difficult. Um, it has this reputation of being too hard for Americans. Final Fantasy five is complicated. It's, it's a, it is a, it is a role-playing game that like kind of forces you to learn about, you know, that you can change your character's job classes at any time. You can mix and match abilities. Simple stuff today, but at the time, Square was really thinking like, I mean, that's why they made Final Fantasy Mystic Quest. You know, they they didn't really they didn't, they didn't dumb it down. They just made it so you couldn't get yourself confused or get yourself lost to everything. The next thing to do was, was really mapped out for you. They just really felt that like people, maybe a lot of the kids that kind of owned consoles, you know, in the U.S. needed that kind of helping hand to help them along. So, but Final Fantasy V had this reputation of being, oh, it's so difficult, you know. Um, but I was just like, okay, I have to play Final Fantasy V. Now, you might say, well, gee, Chris, why don't you just go onto the internet and download the ROM and play it? Because they didn't, that, because you couldn't do that. Um, they had only in 1996. I know emulators. Emulators had really they 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 the em, you know the idea of like emulating console games on PC, like it does go back a ways. Um, I remember getting Colem. Uh, the ColecoVision emulator on my PC. This was in 96. Um, It was right. It was summer of 1996 when I first played it. And I know that because I wrote about it in video zone in the fanzine right next to my preview of Super Mario 64, (laughs) which I had just gone to Toys R Us and played Super Mario 60. It was like July of 96. I just gone down to Toys R Us and just camped at the Super Mario 64 demo station, Um, came home, wrote a preview and wrote about Colem on the same page. Um, and, uh, that was really fascinating to me, you know, the ability to, oh, my computer just became a ColecoVision, huh? And, you know, at a staggering pace, um, the, the ability to emulate stuff on the PC, um, you know, really, really advanced, uh, just so quickly, more quickly than I think we anticipated. But the thing is, I bought Final Fantasy V, the cartridge in 1995. Um, I bought it right after I got it, you know, or yeah, it was the summer of 95. It was right after I got Final Fantasy three or six for Christmas and, you know, 94, because that was how I had to do it. And I called diehard game fan. And they, again, they quoted me an absurd three digit price for Final Fantasy five. Um, yeah. I want to,
0: I want to pause on that real quick just because yeah, that yeah, yeah. is so um, it, it's, if you're someone who imports games today, Uh, that already is just such a crazy thing. And I don't, I don't know if you actually have insight into, um, you know, I know that the exchange rate back then was a little bit different than Mm -hmm. it is now. Um, it's more in the US's the U S dollars favor these days. Um, and I know that the postal system nowadays is, um, you know very good at getting stuff from Japan to here like very quick and you know you might think it's expensive but honestly getting a package all the way from Japan to here you know <laughs> it's really it's really not a, a crazy crazy cost yeah. but um you know a brand new game then was what double or more the cost of what a brand new game in the US would be and I don't know if, yeah. I don't know if you have any insight into why that like why it was so bad back then
2: i mean i would love well first of all there's i mean i would i would sincerely doubt that like diehard game fan was getting their games from japanese distributors they were probably i mean buying them you know at retail um and having somebody i mean i i would have i mean i would imagine they're literally just like I mean, if, if maybe somebody is literally in Akihabara just, like, buying games for them on day one at retail price and then mailing them uh, to California. I mean, it's entirely possible. I mean, I I would actually love to hear this, too. I vaguely remember somebody telling me, like, oh, I knew somebody back in the day that, like, was a supplier for buy right video games. Frank, I'm sure you remember buy right video games. Um, I don't absolute like worst company to deal with like they were (laughs) they were they were an importer in the late 90s like like ncs and the national console support and places like that and their whole thing was they had a lot of like low prices but it's like anything you can name selling used games as new games selling you mailing you the wrong thing mailing you the wrong thing six months later mailing you nothing you know just like Everybody, all everybody from that era has like a buy right games like horror story, and I mean somebody said to me once like, oh, I knew somebody who supplied for them, and yeah, they just went around Akihabara and just bought up used games, and I, I mean I honestly I think the prices at Die Hard Game Fan were set by what people were willing to pay, because where else were you going to go? Um, yeah. I don't think it, they weren't buying them wholesale. I think they were buying them either retail. They were probably scooping up a lot of 100 yen used games in Japan and bringing them here and selling them for 50, 60 bucks or whatever. I'm just speculating. But like, if you think about it, why not? Because if because nobody else was doing it. And it was probably like a license to print money for a little while.
0: Okay, well, this is a little off, uh, off topic, but that makes me curious. Because you said 100 yen games is... Has the Japanese used video game market always been like it is, like we think of it now, where stuff does get uh, pretty cheap pretty quick? Because you've does. been to Japan, like, you know, even going all the way back to, I don't know when you went to Japan for the first time, I'm but at least 20 years old, ago, yes. right? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. No, yeah, it, it was actually, I think it was, um, oh, it's more than 20 years ago. It's, yeah, I know. I way past my, um, I'm about to come up on the 20th anniversary of me leaving Japan for the last time, you know, as a person who lived there, which is going to be even worse than the anniversary of going there the first time. I yes, because what would happen in Japan and even back in the day, and this is why there was all this legislation around used games there, is because people would absolutely rush out; they buy. Um, the latest game, they buy 3 million copies of it on day one because like that that, that culture existed, right? Where it did not exist here. The games didn't have release dates. People didn't line up in front of shops to buy games. But in Japan, Dragon Quest three comes out. People line up, they all buy it, they beat it, and they sell it back. And if the game is actually, if the game is something that like diehard game fan loves, which is like a really short platforming game, you know, people all buy it, they sell it back, so Die Hard can now go buy these cheap copies because these, suddenly there's a huge, you know, um, over, um, overstock, right? The, there's a huge oversupply. Demand isn't there. But people in America have never played it, and it's not going to come out in America for another six months to a year, if ever. So there's an opportunity there to grab what Japan doesn't want and then sell it here for 2X retail. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I speculate was, was the case in, you know, in many cases. At this point, Final Fantasy V was three years old um, it was not an expensive game in Japan anymore. It was not. And so the price they quoted me kind of ridiculous. And then I was able, and so again, this is where like this new thing called the internet comes in. Um, cause in 93, I got America online. And the funny thing about me getting America online is I was making, uh, ZZT games for, you know, Epic's, Epic's first game, ZZT. Um, and uh they were all they were all copyright infringement games based on uh, Yoshi for, you know, and um I uploaded these to America Online, and I didn't really understand that I was uploading these games to the ZZT area of America Online for people to download and play, and i didn't I didn't realize at that point that that meant that they would be online forever, and that they would never go away because uh, they have never gone away. <laughs> Um and my, my first still...
1: my early fan gamey thing is not on the internet I'm proud to say it actually, yep. actually did go away. Yeah, I've so. I've been yep. able
0: to d- actually delete some stuff from the internet, but it fe- it feels like things only continue to exist on the internet if you don't want them to and then otherwise uh they're gone forever. See, the trick the trick Yoshi Chris is are that out of hands. Yeah. the trick
1: is that you were uh using ZZT which is like a popular thing. Right. I I was I made a terrible game in AGI the Sierra adventure game interpreter because we oh, have okay. an open source uh so that yeah. community not nearly as solid as the ZZT one <laughs> so wiped from history.
2: ZZT is so interesting because um it actually like it actually still absolutely is a total totally viable uh game creation engine today it's like because it uses uh ANSI text the graphics are as good as they could ever possibly get. And therefore it's fine. So if you want to make a game in with anti-text graphics, ZZT is a perfectly viable way to Mm do that. Um, So people are still making it because it's, you can't get any better than that. If it got any more complicated, it wouldn't be good. Um, And so, yeah, and it, no, it's, it's actually really great. I, I, I joke, but like, it's, it's, it's so funny to like meet people, um, who were just like, oh, your games were like a big part of my childhood, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like these things I made and they get away from you, it's like so funny how it got away and yeah um, so I I uploaded zZt games to America Online and then I don't know, like I, I America Online also had news groups, you know, so like Alt Games Final Fantasy was a news group that you could join, it was just people posting, I mean, if you don't know what a news group is, I mean, geez it's just like Imagine just like, you know, NeoGAF or Reset Era, basically like a forum, um, but it's just, it's just people posting a message, and then like, it's just a list of all the messages people have posted. And you might say, that's going to get out of hand. It didn't, because there were only like 12 people who liked video games at that point, you know? So it's like it didn't, or wanted to post about them on the internet. So, I mean, it didn't get out of hand, because, you know, there just weren't enough people for it to get out of hand. Um, and so I... I think I asked at one point, you know, like, where can I get a copy of Final Fantasy five? That's not going to be ridiculous amount of money. And somebody was like, oh, there's this store called Game Land uh, in Torrance, California. And if you if you call them and you you want a certain game, they'll take your credit card info over the phone and then they'll they'll just mail it to you. Um, so great. You know, I called them. Yeah, they, they, they sell Final Fantasy five for forty nine ninety five. Which, again, means that in Japan, it was like five bucks, you know? Um, so they, and I mean, and they they put it in the mail. Takes forever to get here. I give, I give my parents credit. Actually, I say, you know, oh, I was giving my parents credit card number over the phone. That's what everybody did with credit. That was what you did with credit cards. You called somebody up and you gave them your credit card number over the phone. You know, there was no electronic identity theft to, you know, to worry about, right? So, and I get Final Fantasy V. And then the internet had also told me, again, this is sort of very nascent community of people just sort of exchanging information via text. And by the way, the internet, there were some fanzine editors who were like, I'm going to go internet only. I'm just going to put my words on a website on the internet. And if you want to read my reviews, you can go read them there. Um, and that... uh kind of got a little, that was controversial at that time, you know, in, in terms of pen and paper fanzine editors, because, you know, it's like, we wanted to make magazines. And also it was like, well, okay, but I'm not going to send you my, my zine for free anymore, because that was what we did. You would exchange zines with people. And it's like, uh, well, if you're just going to put this on the internet, I'm not, I'm not sending anything to you. Um, so it was interesting that some people were really on the forefront of like, no, I should just put this online. Um, but there were some, you know, I mean, you start to find these groups of people on the internet. You start to find people who can help you out. And so I, I get Final Fantasy V and then people on the internet had told me, so don't, so the Super Famicom cartridge is not going to fit in your Super Nintendo. So what you do is you get a, a pair of pliers and you open up the cartridge slot on your Super Nintendo and there's two little plastic tabs and you, and you rip them out. Okay. Now, again... At the time, the Super Nintendo was our family's video game system. Like, we had just, it was, N64 was not out yet. Like, this was the console. Like, we had just, you know, spent $200 to acquire this thing, not a couple of years ago. I'm really proposing that I'm going to take just a pair of pliers and rip it in there, and I'm going to rip something out of it, and then it's magically going to be able to play Japanese games. And trust like, me, it's fine. Trust me. Not <laughs> even trust. No, trust me.
1: Trust the internet. A guy on the internet. Stranger
2: on the internet. On America Online.
1: <laughs> Which we don't understand yet. <laughs> right.
2: Um, could be anybody out there. Um, so I'm like, okay, I get the pliers, rip everything out. Put the game in. And the funny thing with Final Fantasy V, and I talk about this in the book, is that like when you turn on the game, it it starts on a black screen. And then like after like a beat, you know, it, it, the final fantasy five logo kind of comes up, you know, it's a very, you know, it's a really neat intro. Um, but I mean, I turn on this thing and it starts with a black screen and I'm like, oh, f- me, you know, just ruined like,
0: oh, my me. super <laughs> Nintendo. The other thing too, I mean, you know, these games, especially since they're used, they get dirty. And I don't know how common, like everyone knew to blow on their games, but like, I don't know how common yeah. knowledge it was to like actually do deep cleaning you don't games. know. So,
2: <laughs> you, you you know, I mean, maybe you, you you know this. I mean, you run the Video Game History Foundation, you know, but like you don't I don't think you have personal knowledge of like going into a Funko land. And like when whenever you go into whenever you for a good five, ten year period of time there, if you went to a Funko land and bought anything, they gave you the hard sell on their system cleaning uh, package. Which was a, which was again like this, this thing that it's like they made it. So the profit margins on this thing were outrageous because it was uh, like, like some Q tips and alcohol, you know what I mean? <laughs> in, in the shape of video game cartridges. Uh, and they would, it, they, they, a dollar's worth of materials, if that, that they would try to sell you for like 15 bucks. And they'd give you the hard sell because they had to push the video game cleaning kits. And everybody was freaking out over video game cleaning. Got to keep your video games clean because, of course, I mean, all of that had just come from the fact that the the zero force insertion stuff and the NES was break a minute, you know, sort of garbage and would eventually just break. But they had us, everybody had it convinced that if that happened to you, that it was because you didn't clean your games enough. Um, and so video game cleaning kits were this, they were this huge, huge thing. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, but we also, but then, but then, you know, I mean, most of the time you just blow on it and it's, (laughs) it's fine piece of dust or God knows what. Um, and so, yeah, the game did boot, um, game land seemed like a nice place. Seemed like they actually really, you know, were, were dedicated to customer service, you know, um, they probably cleaned the games and, um, and it booted up and it was like, oh, nice. I did it. I can't read Japanese. What am I thinking? You know, because you think that like, oh, I'll just I'll just skip through the text, you know. Did this but not like,
0: occur to you ahead of time like that that it was an RPG, you've played RPGs. They have a lot of words yeah. in them. That like surely you <laughs> had it had to have occurred to you that this was going to be a problem.
2: <laughs> so the problem, the yeah, I I my what I was thinking was it doesn't matter because even if I can't read the story, you know, I can still play the game and see the graphics and hear the music and, you know, I'll get kind of a sense of what's going on, but I'll, I'll just have to skip through the story. What I didn't really think out was like, again, like Final Fantasy V, I mean, even even if even if it was a simpler Final Fantasy game, like you, you have to be able to read what the item is. Um, but I really, I, I approached it with this sort of a, um, okay, uh, this is, you know, I I just remember like I got an item and I so I saved the game and then I went into battle and I used the item on my character and they gained hit points um and I'm like oh okay that's that that must be cure you know so I sit there and I wrote down the japanese characters for what turned out to be potion you know but I didn't know that and I wrote down next to it you know heals you <laughs> And and that was how I was gonna play the game. Um
0: by making 14. your own Rosetta Stone of of exactly. Japanese.
2: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I did have I had one um research tool at my disposal, and that was the I the instruction book to Mario Paint on the Super Nintendo, because Mario Paint, I believe, had a global ROM and they left the Japanese characters in uh in the game. And then they were like in the instruction book, the instruction book or the Nintendo Power Guide, it was one or, or Nintendo Power is one of them, and it was just like, here's the Japanese characters that are in the game and here's what they what they mean. So I'm like, great. I'll use I can use this, you know, to puzzle out <laughs> what the words are. <laughs> in the, what they are in Japanese. I like that. Like you, you,
1: you probably could have gotten something from the library, but you're like Nintendo power has.
2: Me. <laughs> well, I could I've have, got yeah, they got me. Well, I mean, I was just sort of assembling what I had, you know, at the time yeah. I, I might've been able to get other materials. And, you know, actually it was very shortly after that, that I actually started taking Japanese. Okay. Um, and, um, the, and, and yeah, I got lucky. It wasn't offered at my high school, but I was able to, I, I grew up really close to Yale university and, um, they had a program that they were like, Oh, like we'll have like Yale undergrads teach the language they're learning to high school kids, like local high school kids. So they can get experience in teaching, you know, and continue to do language learning, you know, worked out, worked out great. Um, and, um, so that helped. And then additionally, again, new friends on the internet, um, I met people in, I think, all games, Final Fantasy, um, who were actually able, they like, they were playing it, too. Or they, in one case, um, of, of this guy who actually was Japanese, uh, had played it. And um, so we all started, we basically, like, they start helping me out. And then I'm like, oh, let's, let's write an FAQ for this game. Because um, there is no FAQ for it. Other people are going to want to import Final Fantasy V. Let's let's kind of help them out. So basically, I mean, long story short, like, we all worked together. The guy, Tatsushi Nakao, who was uh, studying at the University of Boulder, Colorado, he wrote the walkthrough based on Japanese guides that he had, because he was a big Final Fantasy fan. He had a Final Fantasy fan website uh, called Ilusha, the Town of Final Fantasy, um, which... Um, just sadly, just like its name has, I think, disappeared at this point. Um, and um, and then Wait, it's not Stevens, on the
0: Internet Archive.
2: I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was a whole thing. It was like the town of Final Fantasy. And you would it was you would click on different buildings and things like that to read about Final Fantasy. I think it's gone. Uh, if it's not gone, please correct me. I'd love to experience it again. Um, the other person was Nora Stevens, who at that time, again, was a college student. Um, and, uh, like a college freshman basically, but she's in localization now. She, she localized kingdom hearts games and I think silent hill games and stuff like that. Um, at the time, but it was so, it was so funny because, um, I'm like 15 and, um, I mean, like, again, like, you know, we, 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 we'd only just gotten like America online a couple of years ago, you know, the internet was this brand new thing. And, um, now I have a cool older friend who is a girl and she's in college, and she plays Final Fantasies in the original Japanese. You know what I mean? Like, it's, a, you know, for a kid who, you know, maybe had a limited friend circle, you know, in my actual life, um, and was, like, the Nintendo nerd, you know what I mean? Like, to find, like, other nerds like that um, on the internet was, was was a pretty amazing thing. Um, and so uh, we you know, we basically like they're helping, they're writing this fact or they're writing the walkthrough and and Nora is uh transcribing all of the moves and all of the abilities for all the final fantasy five jobs and all that kind of stuff, you know, writing it all down in English and I'm using it. Like I'm, I'm pulling the fact together as the editor, you know, and trying to pull it, pull together other info, but like I'm using their information to play the game too. So yeah. So I beat, Final Fantasy V with the help of people on the internet who, you know, helped me do it. Um, and wrote about it in video zone. And, and I think I printed the address of game land to try to help other people, you know, get it. Um, but it was just very, um, you really had to like, you really had to work for it if you wanted to be part of video game fan culture at that time, both in terms of importing games, You know, learning what other fans thought about games, and it was really interesting. And so, I I mean, as you know, I donated um, my whole fanzine collection uh, to the library at the Strong Museum Um, because, I mean, they were they they had been very interested in it for a really long time. Because, like, those fanzines, like that's like the archive of what video game fans in the early 90s and in mid 90s like thought about video games you know not filtered through corporate publications but like what actual gamers were doing what they were playing and what they thought about things it's all kind of written down on those black and white pages and nowhere else
0: and you know not not like uh we're doing a great job of Archiving. I say we, I just mean like the world doing a great job of archiving things like Twitter and uh, form posts and that sort of thing. But like that's that is pretty much it in terms of, you know, you didn't have that back then. So there's not a lot of places you can go um, other than just, you know, literally talking to people like like you're doing right now and just explaining how this worked. Um, There's not a lot of like physical evidence of (laughs) of how it worked back then. (laughs)
2: That's
1: true. that's true yeah and i know what i find interesting hearing stories like this from people like you and is that i mean i was around and even like subscribed to video game magazines but it did not occur to me that there was like a fan culture for video games until i got the internet in like 98 99 or something like that like i you know for uh i You know, I I, and I would have understood that term for things like comic books, you know, because I because I followed comic books that like there were there was like fans that, you know, got in nerdy arguments and stuff like that. But like it, it's really interesting that I I somehow missed that, like, I don't know that that there were like video game nerds, you know, because because for me and everyone I knew it was just like, yeah, that's what we do because we're kids. (laughs) That's that is that is what is prescribed to us is that we have video games and we like them. But but, you know, actually like thinking about them, you know, in in, in ways past that was not something that even occurred to me until the, the very late 90s.
2: Yeah, it was like a huge video game. Like every kid played Nintendo. Right. But like even amongst the kids who played Nintendo at my school, like I was known as the Mr. Nintendo guy who was constantly constantly had my issue of Nintendo power and was reading it constantly drawing comics in class with Mario and Yoshi and stuff like that. You know, I was, I was really deep into it um, in a way that other people simply were not. And so the chance to find the other people that were really deeply into it was really, I mean, it ultimately was, it was something that I had to had to do like the fanzine, the fanzine central column really, really our fandom central really called out to me, um, as like, Oh I got, I, I have to get involved in this. And not only that, but like, I was already creating all the content just for myself. You know what I mean? I was already like writing a magazine about video games writing reviews of video games in the school paper and stuff like that for nobody to read or really care about. Um, and it was like, Oh, there might be an audience for this. There might be people who actually like want to read this and, you know, and and go back and forth with me and this kind of stuff. And, oh, we got into fights, you know? I mean, and I feel, you know, I feel bad because like I was a crappy, you know, 15, 16-year-old kid getting into fights with like maybe even maybe less crappy 12 12- to 13-year-old kids, but you know what I mean? Like you don't like, you don't say, oh, you're a kid, it's okay. No, 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 you, you get into it with them, you know, and you call them stupid. But I mean, it was all like... It wasn't on the internet. It wasn't on Twitter and it wasn't on forums. It was like sending literally letters to each other through the mail, you know, calling people idiots. I mean, it's (laughs) hilarious to think about it at the time. I apologize if anybody's listening. You know what I mean? Um, But it's just like there were – and they're all in the strong – all those letters in the strong now. And, um, you know, it's just like (laughs) – Just just like,
1: you know, oh, published in the zines, the letters. It wasn't just a little porf. Oh,
2: oh, yeah. Oh, some of the sniping. I mean, if you go through the zines, you see people sniping at each other in the because we all did zine review columns, too. So, I mean, you snipe at people that way. There was one guy. (laughs) There was one guy. Oh my gosh, I forget the name of uh, I forget the, the name of this of this kid. But he was literally like his his girlfriend, I mean, they were like 14. And his girlfriend wanted to help on the fanzine. So she said, Oh, you know, I'll be the copy editor. So he like wrote in the fanzine something like, if you see any spelling errors or anything like that, you know, and you want to write letters about it, you have to send them all to my girlfriend and like and people kind of you know laughed at him for that like what are you just sort of like outsourcing all your mistakes now or you're outsourcing to like your 14 year old girlfriend and um I mean I think I wrote something in my fanzine that was like any any spelling errors in video zone or are, are the are the responsibility of this guy's girlfriend yeah. <laughs> you know, <write> her. <laughs> It was just, it was awful. And I mean, you know, but um, it was so funny because it's all of, it's all the crapo internet behavior, um, but it was like on letters through the U.S. mail at each other. It's, it's everything. Everything was there. Everything was there. All of the console war baloney was there. All of the sniping, you know, it was all just there, like, but it was just like on Xeroxed paper.
0: Well, and your kids. And, you know, when you're a kid, there's nothing more there's nothing dumber to you than a kid who is like one year younger than you you know
2: (laughs) (laughs) oh god and of course you think you know everything and so it's like oh my god i mean the one there was some poor kid who was just like you know the atari was a one-bit system you know what i mean that kind of that kind of thing and you know guess what moron you know it's just oh
0: You've been well, actuallying since day one.
2: Since day one. Since day so, one.
0: So, I mean, I have regrets. It it,
1: it does feel like in uh, we're we're sort of on the cusp of of this transitioning into internet culture at this point, right?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, eventually. Uh, well, you know, for for me, it was like I never really had to start. Like, I guess I had a website back in the day, but it's like you know, it was. Uh, at, at that point, I was getting a lot of freelance work. So it's not like I was putting a lot of stuff on the internet, you know, for, for free uh, by by the time that the websites and the blogs and such kind of became a thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, the nascent sort of internet culture was springing up where, yeah, it turns out that um, it's a lot easier and faster um, to make enemies online and yell at people if you simply do it on the internet, because then you get those real quick reactions so again, I mean, there was stuff, there was stuff through email, there was stuff through email where people were, you know, yelling at each other and CCing other fanzine editors via email, and um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, so with, um, there's, so I wrote the book Final Fantasy V for Boss Fight Books, and I talked about, you know, sort of being this, uh, it was, it was not just me, because it was, Uh, For a lot of people, um, it was like the first game they ever imported. So I got a lot of people telling me, oh, yeah, it was the same thing for me. That was the first game I ever imported. And then I meet um, people that are like 10 years younger than that. And they're not even, you know, maybe even five years younger. And they're like, oh, Final Fantasy V. That was the first ROM I ever downloaded. And you, and you can tell it's just like I mean it, it, there wasn't actually that much time by by 1997 basically like you could play Final Fantasy V on an emulator you know 97 98 might have had a few bugs you might have had to mess with the background layers sometimes because the Super Nintendo transparency effects couldn't be handled by the emulator I knew that that was actually happening by the way because once that happened as the author of the Final Fantasy V FAQ. People started writing me saying, I can't get through the water maze. Your, your FAQ doesn't address the water maze. Um, and eventually, there is no water maze in Final Fantasy V, but the Super Nintendo was not, the, the SNES emulators at the time were not rendering the transparent water layer, the translucent water layer properly. And so they just saw their character in the middle of fully opaque water. Um, and they're, they're like, now tell me the directions to get through the water maze. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you here. <laughs> you might want to turn off the, turn off a background layer on your emulator is what you need to do.
1: I just looked it up for reference. The, the English translation patch dropped, uh, October 17th, 1998.
2: Yeah. Which is wild because like, it, this all happens so quickly. Like we think about yeah. final fantasy five as though this game you were never able to play, but it's like, yeah, I imported it in 95 emulators were pretty good, you know, in 97, but I mean, so Final Fantasy five was this, it was a, it was a game that outside of Japan was like owned by fans. It was like, you had to either go out of your way to import it, rip the tabs out of your super Nintendo to play it, figure out a way to learn Japanese to play it, um, get other people to help you play it, find them on the internet. And then by the time that, you know, internet fan culture kind of starts up um, fans are like, well, let's translate it. Um, I say in the book also, um, I remember, like the first ROM hack that I ever played was a nude punch out. Um, And they, they, they removed all of the clothing from all of the boxers in punch out. And, um, and it, and I, I think people were just like, well, we could do, you know, we could do this, you know, and we could, we could, you know, draw um, King hippo naked, or, you know, we could, we could change the text in final fantasy V, which would be smarter to do. We could Um, help
0: people get access to these cool games. I am. I, I'm curious, like, uh, I mean, you even say in the book that pretty much anyone who imported uh, Final Fantasy V now works in the game industry. It's like the, the Velvet Underground yeah. uh, analogy, you know, just anyone who, there weren't that many of you, but those of you that existed, you're, you all ended up in the game industry. Yeah. Why that game? Like, there's so many games that didn't come to America that are great, and there's even a ton of really good games. JRPGs from that era that didn't come to America.
2: That's right. I think well, I think it was because it was sandwiched by these two games that in the US were considered the the you know there's no better Japanese role playing games than Final Fantasy 2 II and 3. Um and so like again the Dragon no Dragon um quest games came out at all for the Super Nintendo in the US. Um, those other JRPG series, you know, maybe some of them came over, but a lot of them didn't. Um, and so with final fan, I mean, final fantasy was it final fantasy was the big one. And so that there was a super NES final fantasy that was missing. It was, it was, I mean, people, people really fell in love with four and with six. And I think there was just that feeling of God, I love these games so much. I mean, Squaresoft fandom was a big part of early internet gaming fandom as well. Um, you know, and Andrew Vestal, who I talk about in the book, you know, had established very early on the unofficial SquareSoft homepage um, because he tried to search the internet for information for information about Final Fantasy and didn't find anything. So he's like, "I'm gonna again." Let me say this again: He tried to search on the internet for information about Final Fantasy, <laughs> and there wasn't anything. <laughs> So he's like, I gotta make this page. So it's like I will cobble together every piece of information I can about Squaresoft. Um, you know, these tiny little screenshots and little bits of information about these games and things like that. And um, you know, started started, you know, helping create more of a mythology around the Squaresoft and the Final Fantasy series. Um, and so with yeah, with Final Fantasy V, it was like it was smack in the middle of those games. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know. It's like, it was him and, you know, him and me and, uh, you know, uh, John Riccardi who runs eight Four the localization studio. He was, you know, he was importing that, and, um, Christian nut, you know, uh, who, uh, has gone on to many things in the video game industry had, had made it a, a point to get final fantasy five. It's like, we all had to have it. And I actually, I, I didn't even I didn't talk about it in the book, but, um, I had even seen it and I had completely forgotten about this, um, but I had uh, a friend whose older brother had Super Nintendo copiers. Like, again, like this is 95, 94, even, you know? Um, and uh, i must have been 94. It was like freshman year of high school. I went, went to his house, and his older brother, who was like, you know, in his, I think, 20s and like actually had like, you know, actual money, had bought like Super NES copiers where he'd copy games onto floppy disks um, and run them on your super Nintendo. And like one of the games he had was final fantasy five. And I think that like gave me even more of a feeling like, Oh my God, I've got to play this. You know, you see the one screenshot and it's just like, what happens in this game? I have to know. And I think it was to more of an extent than other JRPGs. It's like, Oh, JRPGs are cool. That game looks cool. But to see the one screenshot of final fantasy five and electronic gaming monthly, it's like, what happens in this game? what happens in this game? I have to know what happens. What does the music sound like? Can't down. What am I going to download an MP3 of the soundtrack? There's no MP3s of the soundtrack. You can't do that. Like I, I barely have, you know, my hard drive is barely a hundred megs. What am I going to put, fill up with music? You there's, there's no CD quality music you can download. Can't even listen to it. So yeah.
0: So I'm something that I think about a lot. is just like, the vast majority of people in America had very, very little exposure to Japanese video games. I mean, you know, we got plenty, right? Like, there are plenty of games that were made in Japan came out over here. But, you know, they they gated a lot of things that had a lot of text, which, you know, we just had Navogasaur yeah. on the show. And the, that's you know at least partially because that's very expensive and difficult to do and by the time you get it done it's like you know games are already been out for a year or whatever right. um but they also you know they just they don't bring everything over for one reason or another cuz they think Americans don't like it um and i wonder if that's like almost I don't, stunted's the wrong word but i i just i think about how like a lot of people just really didn't get to have these inspirations. Like they didn't get to see some of the work that was coming out of Japan until much later. And then there were a handful of you, you know, you and uh, John Riccardi and some of these other people who did get to see those like much earlier than, uh, than the rest of the world.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, so I was, I got, I got super into things that were from Japan. I don't know why, you know what I mean? I'm not sure why that happened, but like, you know, again, it kind of all goes back to, um, you know, uh, like um, anything that I could get my hands on that was like Japanese popular culture related, I would buy. And like today, that would mean you would go broke because you can go to Target and buy Sailor Moon, you know, uh, T-shirts, a- a- anything. You know what I mean? It's 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 permeated the world. Um, at the time, well, I mean, certainly, you know people in America had more exposure to Japanese made uh, popular culture products um, than at any time previously, you know, because um, the American video game companies had all bailed out of the video game industry, leaving, you know, the door open for Nintendo to come in, taking up, at its height, ninety percent of the market, um, and most of the games—not all of them—were games that were coming from Japan, and so people didn't really know necessarily that they were consuming Japanese popular culture, you know, media, um, but they were. But it's true that we were not getting, and would not get for a long time, the full breadth of all of the things we. And and every time something snuck through, it's really weird when you look back at at the stuff that snuck through. Um, Cause it didn't really hit, you know, people it's, it's like those, it's like, um, you, there's so many NES games, Frank, that like have a big banner across it that says sold a million copies in Japan. Yeah. And they're hoping that that means it's going to sell May I don't know, maybe two, three, 4 million in the U S because of right. the population difference. And it's like, and it's like, uh um it's not stuff like i don't know, ghost
1: lion or something right? yeah yeah yeah
2: <laughs> i think of i think of princess tomato in the salad kingdom mm. princess tomato in the salad kingdom is the quintessential almost like one of the one of the quintessential kind of like japanese uh, computer games of that era because it's a it's a graphical uh text adventure with menus um you know it's got that anime style to it it's funny it's quirky it's right in right in the wheelhouse of the stuff that actually did very well in the Japanese computer you know world and it got ported to Famicom which many of the big ones did mm-hmm. um you know like the Portopia serial murder case which was the Ujihori game you know um all that kind of stuff but then Hudson Soft actually translated it for the US and Still it not, shocking, it, yeah. And it did, <laughs> it, and it did not sell well. But
1: the thing I, is, I, can, I personally rented it three times. I'm just going to put that out there. loved yeah. that
2: game. Yeah. It's
1: a wonderful game. But the thing is,
2: the the a, the audience that played that and went, "What is this? I need more of this in my life." That's how that started to grow you know that's how that's how those people be, started to to come into existence it's so funny cuz like, like
1: I'm, I'm you know i'm i'm just thinking back to me playing it like nothing about it nothing occurred to me that's like this is japanese like i was just like this sure. is a video game
2: yeah <laughs> you know? i think you start realizing though like all this like all this stuff that seems um like it it comes from a different cultural place or that it's just not more creative, but creative down a totally different road. It's like, oh, that, oh, it's from Japan. Oh, this is from Japan too. Mm-hmm. And you kind of start, you, you know, I started kind of putting that together. You know, I mean, there was a there was a comic book series. This is more like '93. There's a comic book series called a uh, Ninja High School. Um, I, I would not expect you, Kelsey, to know about Ninja High School. Do you know about Ninja High School? Probably not. Uh, you don't, I do you, not know. You don't need to. So basically, there was there was a uh, there was a comic book, an independent comic book publisher, um, and it was in the U.S. and it was made up of people who really loved manga, um, and but like manga really weren't available in translation, and also like to bring manga here, like in the early nineties, you know, you had to take the issue of manga reverse the page, redraw all the sound effects on the page, which are now mirrored, and release it in comic book form. And by the time you do that, you can't sell it for like two bucks because like all the other comics. But these guys, Ninja High School was a American comic that was drawn in manga style And that kind of like brought in a lot of the sort of quirkiness like of manga as seen through an American lens. So it was like, but it was like schoolgirls, nudity, violence, wacky humor. Um, And it was like, it was actually distributed in the US and like you could buy it on the stand at your local drugstore or whatever. And, um, and this to me was amazing. You know, I loved this. And then, you know, they even acknowledged, they're like, this is not manga. Like, because there's letter sections and things like that. This is not, this is not real manga. Like, you know, you, you should read Ranma one half and you should read all of this other stuff. And so I start reading that too. And it's like, this is really great. I mean, again, like I'm not going to downplay the extent to which like being 13 and there are boobs in the comic you know like how much that can be kind of a draw. Um but it was but it was more you know it was just it was just funny, it was wacky and it was really inventive in a way that I didn't resonate with superhero comics, but I always loved Mad Magazine and parodies and weird al and all that kind of stuff and this this sort of like spoke to me in that way. And but there weren't a lot of manga out there and there weren't a lot of you know, kind of like weird, you know, weirder sort of like very Japanese, like adventure games and stuff like that out there. I remember buying like a Hello Kitty pencil because I found a Hello Kitty pencil and it was like, this is from Japan. I'm like, I'm going to buy this. No, it was, it was, it was a Karapi, Keropi the frog. And I found a, you know, a Karapi pencil. I'm like, this is so cool. It's from Japan. I'm going to buy this. Like, the stuff wasn't out there. You couldn't get, you couldn't actually get your hands on it. Now it turns out if you lived in like the Bay, if you lived in somewhere, there's a huge like Asian American population. That stuff was there. If you lived in suburban Connecticut, it was very, very not there.
0: (laughs) So Um, believe it or not, I, I, uh, when I lived in Detroit, I lived in uh this suburb called Novi and Novi for whatever reason has a super high population of uh Japanese immigrants and okay. so I I lived there for 3 years and that was absolutely how I I had already like Pokemon had just come out and I was like this is, you know, I I love this thing but it was being there that made me understand that it was Japanese. Like no one no one really told yeah. me as a kid that the stuff that I'm watching and the stuff that I'm playing, is a Japanese thing. It took actually being in a town full of Japanese people. And yes, we had, we were actually able to buy that stuff. You could buy a Japanese copy of Pokemon silver or whatever before it came yeah. out at the local yep. Store, yep. But, yep. but you had to live in those little pockets, I think. And right,
2: right, right. And again,
1: like I'm- tangent, but how many issues do you think Ninja high school ran for? I just looked it up. It's amazing.
2: Um, a hundred
1: ish, 175 stopped in 2009. Wow. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. So had an audience. Yeah. Anyway, for sure. you were saying,
2: yeah, I mean, and, um, and you know, there were, um, I mean, they would do like Ninja high school, like uh, annuals and stuff like that, where like sometimes actual manga artists would draw stuff, you know? And so like, that was like gateway drugs sort of thing. And, but it's just like, Anything you could get your hands on at that point, you would get your hands on because there just wasn't a lot of it out there. Um, and so, but the thing is, so it wasn't really marketable. Like, you know, it was a very, very niche market of people who wanted this stuff, but but it grew and it grew. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, just, just slowly, little by little, like that, it's so funny that that became mainstream culture. I didn't expect that at all. It didn't necessarily have to go that way. Um, but- I mean, I remember when the manga section in the comic book the manga and anime section in the comic book store was like a foot wide. All the books were facing out because there weren't enough of them to fill the the sections. There were all this slim sort of comic book style, you know, volumes, not not you know novel, not graphic novel. Um, and now it's half the Barnes and Noble is yeah. manga, and it's just like, how did how did this happen? That's weird. I mean, it's great. It's just shocking.
1: Yeah, and I mean they they I believe outsell American comics in general in the US. Uh, oh yeah. Manga. yeah. I I I'm, so I'm, I'm sure. I
2: mean and and you know I just again I remember like again from from 20 years ago just so like in Japan comic books aren't just about superheroes. They're in every potential genre. They are sci-fi, they are romance, they're you know it's it's like you know name the the, the film genre. And there was a genre of manga to match that. And it's like, wow, wouldn't that be great if, you know, if everybody read comics and it's like, Oh cool. Everybody, you know, it's like jump forward a little bit and it's like, <laughs> Oh, we're there. We, we made it,
1: you know, but we just read those ones. We didn't make our own. Yeah. <laughs> we do though. We do though. Because it's,
2: it's, it's influenced. It's influenced so much like the comic book creation, you know, here, um, that there's so much stuff even on those manga shelves, you pick it up and it's like published by, you know, if even if it's published by Tokyo Pop, they're still around, right? I think so. Um, you know, it, it might be written by somebody in America, but it's mm. all done in that. It's done in that style, and it's done for that audience. And and like that's the like their their cultural lodestone is. My, even you know, Turning Red, which just came out. And then it's like you asked the director of Turning Red if there was a story, and, and and you know, she was just like, Rama one half, fruits basket. Um, Two others I don't remember, but like those, that's that like, those are the Sailor Moon. It's like, those are the inspirations. I watched Sailor Moon every day. I woke up at 530am ish every day, earlier than I had to for school, so that I could get a tape into the VCR. Are they talk about VCRs, I'm not gonna go there. <laughs> So get, Everyone so, knows okay. what
0: a VCR is. So I could get a tape content. into the VCR
2: <laughs> and press the record button because Sailor Moon aired at 6 a.m. on my local station. Um, you know, and get it all onto VHS. Um, and so again, you had you you had to get out there and you had to work for it. Um, is that better? No, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it was better when Thank it was you. harder to get. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it, you know, that it was better when fewer people were doing it and it was harder to get and you had to really work for it to be able to watch, you know, anime. Uh, absolutely not. Um, but uh, it it built, I think, you know, that's where kind of started to build that group of people that were very dedicated to it.
0: Well, and you became a full-time journalist, and I mean, I assume this informed a lot of like what you wanted to report on too, right? Like the stuff that you had...
2: Yeah. Well, the first, I mean, the first, you know, um, I I had sent my fanzine to... um... Uh, Game On USA. And this was a beautiful thing that happened. Um, you, I know you guys know about Game On USA, given your work, but it was a seven-issue run of on, on America Viz publications, you know, that had, you know, they, they produced One Half in the US and they had their anime magazine. They're like, let's do On America for video games. So On America was all about, you know, reviewing the latest anime. Let's, let's just do a magazine about Japanese video games only. It was 1996. It was too early to do that um but they would translate um video game manga and put that in the magazine so they did Super Street Fighter 2 and um something else that I think uh Paras no, not Parasite something else oh Samurai Showdown Samurai Showdown yeah.
1: and part of the reason I know this is because uh I bought this for no particular reason other than I loved it um at a video I believe it um Retro City in, in Las Vegas, where I, I recently saw Chris Kohler in person. Yes. Um, <laughs> ran into Chris Kohler at a video game store at a city neither of us live in, which is awesome. Um, someone had clipped the entirety of the Samurai Showdown comic from Game On USA and put it in a binder. And yeah, I was like, this is so cute. I'm buying this. I don't know oh, what I'm doing yes. with it, but this Good is idea. mine now.
2: <laughs> we, the story even better than that because I go into Retro City games, which is... Probably like the. the it, pretty sure it's the best video game store in Vegas. It's pretty great for for uh, my yeah, for I've been my to purposes. All of them. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Okay, good. It's best, the one best, that you did. Best game in store in it. Vegas. Yes. It,
0: it's the one where I got all of my cool new weird handhelds. So
1: that's right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, that's true. Oh, I, I mean, I was I was there when you were on the phone getting them. Um, so I walk into the store and I look around a little bit, and I'm picking some stuff out, and I see on the floor they've got two big boxes of magazines, you know, and it looks like good stuff. And my brain, of course, immediately jumps to, oh, I think I should get in touch with Frank, you know, to, 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 to see if he wants me to, like, get any of these or, you know, if it makes sense to buy these and get them to him. But literally, as my brain is reaching the word Frank, I look down closer at the magazines and... Frank is already there, going through them in person, <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh, of course!" Why, I, why? I think
1: he verbalized, <laughs> "Oh, of course." I think I think those are the words that came out of your mouth. Yeah. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Wherever there's a box of video game magazines, magazines there magically Frank. there, crouched over it.
2: And we and we jackpotted because we ended up going to uh, we 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 went through all those boxes, pulled out tons of stuff, and then. Uh, they called their other, we asked them there, there, was another retro city store. And we asked, we said, um, oh, can you uh, see if they have any, uh, magazines? Cause we'll go over there if they do. And, uh, they called up the store and they said, okay, there's some guys coming over. So pull out all the magazines and they'll be there soon. Click. And we we're like, uh oh, that's not what we said. <laughs> we said if, so I'm like, okay, well, we better go over there. But then we ended up going over there and yeah, they had tons. So, I mean, it was, it was a lot of fun, but, um, how did we get on this? magazines, Frank video game. Oh, the game on USA and the binder. Yes. So I wrote for game on USA. I sent in my fanzine. The editor says like your stuff. You want to write for us? Okay, cool. I wrote for them. Magazine shuts down immediately right after I write for them. So that's bad. Um, but then they're like, you know what you can write for on America. Um, and so I end up doing reviews in on America magazine. So because on America was fully just devoted to Japanese popular culture, I got to just write about Japanese games. And so that was great. Um, Then when I started writing for Wired, it was like, I mean, the fun part about like running the video game section on wired.com starting in the year 2005 was that I just got to do whatever I wanted. And so it was like, no, you know, I mean, I could just, you know, I could write about all these weird Japanese games, but the thing is, it's like the, I mean, it was, this was, these were the days of, um, you know, early blog where you're getting paid like $10 a post, you know what I mean? And, and like, So it was just about cranking out the the volume. And so as long as you were doing the volume and the traffic was up and you weren't writing anything, you know, embarrassing, you know, then you just do whatever you want. So it's like, yeah, absolutely. I'll write about all these weird Japanese games. And I'm importing tons of stuff too, because, you know, after Final Fantasy V, after um, Seiken Densetsu III was my next one, which of course that was the sequel to Secret of Mana, which was another one where it was like, you guys didn't translate the actual sequel to Secret of Mana. Instead, you made a whole other game, Secret of Evermore, that's not as good. Like this is this was the plan. So we, you know, ordered Secret of uh, or Seiken Densetsu 3. And then I just start importing everything, you know, at that point. You know, was, I, to, uh, to the extent that my budget, you know, would allow. Um, I don't know if people import stuff that much anymore because it's like everything is sort of global release nowadays. Like, it's almost like if you're going to make a game, if you're going to make a game just for Japan. It's like it's like you're not gonna make a Final Fantasy game just for Japan anymore, you know? So if you're importing I mean there's that like It's because you're that,
0: really into trains.
2: Yeah. <laughs> or like there's that crayon Shinchan game that's um, you know, that like looks like the the my summer vacation series, you know.
1: But do people like, import or do they just log into their Japanese Switch account?
0: Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, as far as new stuff goes, I mean, I, I can speak to this because uh, around this time you were starting at Wired, uh, a little store called Pink Godzilla got started in Seattle, uh, which is now Pink Gorilla and the store that I own. Um, and they started as a very heavy import business and that fell off for a while. And that's something I've you know been trying to bring back a little bit. Um, but what it ends up being now is sometimes you have games that are only released physically in Japan. Only Japan gets the physical release. So the uh, Dragon Quest collection where they had Dragon Quest 1, 2, and 3, Um, the Phoenix Wright collection um, with the first three of those, you can download and, those and
2: ironically a lot of the the Square Enix RPGs are, yeah. there's like a physical version in Japan now too yeah
0: yeah so you can you can totally download those and you know there's english translations and everything like you can just download the english version but you can't buy a physical copy of an english version um but you can buy the japanese one put it in your switch in this case the the switch just will see that you yeah. have a uh your language settings to english and it'll just be like oh you want the english version of this okay yeah so that's kind of what i mean that's that's kind of the extent of it now other than that people do still buy used import games um you know that's still especially for stuff like you know as retro game prices keep getting more, uh, more and more expensive a lot of times um Something like the Game Boy, which is a region-free system, and most yeah. games don't have a lot of text in them. Uh, you, can, you can you can get those games for a fraction of the price if you get the Japanese one. I don't know. That's yeah, so- the state. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think we could kind of wrap it up there. I mean, uh, if you're interested in this conversation, we highly recommend you check out Chris Golder's book, Final Fantasy V, uh, again, available through Boss Fight Books. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the Video Game History Hour. Uh, we will link to all of your stuff in the show notes, but for those listening, where can they keep up with you on the internet?
2: Oh, yeah. Um, I guess just uh, my Twitter is kobunheat, which is K-O-B-U-N-H-E-A-T, which is a good sort of... You know, place to figure out what i'm doing right now and
1: send me messages and uh keep up on uh the stuff chris is doing at digital eclipse yes well yeah should probably mention that because I, I don't know that I, this was i don't even know if that was your job last time we spoke to oh honest. it may,
2: uh no I think, I think i think it might have been i think, I think it, it might have been, been yeah. yeah it wasn't that wasn't that long ago but yeah so i'm at digital eclipse now and uh we just announced teenage Mut- ninja turtles the Kawabunga collection yay coming and in I, 2022
1: I was saying this in the lunchroom the other day, but it's like I it's I love that I'm in a place now with Digital Eclipse where like I see the trailer and go, oh, cool. They got the Game Boy uh, Metroidvania. Like, I you know what I mean? Like being surprised. Oh, by yeah. Stuff that's going on because I'm just not paying attention. It's, it's right. 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 It's cool. It's, I like it. It's not that we wouldn't tell you. It's just, oh, of course, it's busy. just that I'm not paying
2: <laughs> enough attention. So it's just right, neat to right, see right.
1: something that I was a part of. I don't know. Going on without me, in, in, in ways that delight me. So, anyway, it's
2: def- yeah. So, I mean, um, the uh, not to get not to get too into this, but it's like the 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 turtles project had been like kind of like in the works for a long time, like even prior to me joining, which was like in mid twenty twenty, you know. And it was kind of like it was it was kind of greenlit like right after I joined, so I didn't get input on the list of games. So, fortunately, fortunately, you know, it had already been worked out that it was going to be every game. Um, I was like okay great but like definitely in the future I mean you know I have your back like you know when we start (laughs) discussing other collections I'm definitely going to be the one going uh what about the uh what about the the the, the amstrad version of this you know what I mean like, like you know like not for we... turtles but yeah <laughs> not for turtles not for <laughs> turtles no 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 not for turtles but like you know for um for other collections possibly in the future I'm always going to be thinking about like well where's the weird stuff like can we can we do it like
1: can we get it in there yeah. depends on the partner you're working with uh, so... yep. <laughs> all right Chris thanks again this is awesome yeah thank you
0: Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.